Beloved, in God's creation, there are four laws of force. There are four forces that basically govern and control all aspect of God's creation. There is the strong and weak internal nuclear forces. There is electromagnetism, which in essence just uh, governs in how different atoms interact with other atoms and molecules and such. And then there's the fourth force, which is by far the weakest of the four, but the most noticeable, namely gravity. And bas- basically every aspect of what we see in God's creation flows from this. All the other laws and theorems flow from this. Einstein's theory of relativity equals mc squared can be traced back to these. The Snell's law, which basically governs the refraction angle of a wave passing from one medium to another. Or to help you understand what that just meant, when you put a stick into water, the stick looks like it is bent. Uh, The black body theory of radioactive decay. The first law of thermodynamics, which God put in place some 6,000 plus years ago when he ceased his creative work. Or the second law of thermodynamics which was instituted by God as a form of judgment after the sin, all of these can be traced back to these four fundamental forces. Now, having said that, there are many scientists that have sought and are even now seeking what they call the grand unification theorem. To have one equation, one formula that explains everything. Uh, Most of these scientists that I'm aware of that seek this are seeking it completely independently from what is obvious and demonstrable to them, namely that there is a creator God that has put all things into place and conducts everything according to his created order. And beloved, the reason why I say this, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Our passage this morning are the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. In a moment, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Uh, Verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 1 is one sentence in the original Greek. And the fourth verse there is a wonderful transition verse. Uh, Grammatically, it's part of the end of this one sentence in the original language. So grammatically, it goes with verses 1 through 3 before. Thematically, it goes with the author of Hebrews picking up the topic of angels in verse 5 and what will go forward. But listen, beloved, as I read the word of God, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. God... After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power." When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, beloved, the reason why I mentioned the grand unification theory at the beginning is, beloved, when I consider these four verses, and even more particularly, more concisely, the three verses, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, if I was to identify a grand unification theorem that basically captures and encapsulates the entirety of all the Word of God, what He communicates to us from Genesis to Revelation, I don't think there is a better 
passage than Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, right now, the author opens this up in the non-traditional sense of not identifying himself as the author. We don't know with absolute certainty the location of the audience to whom he is writing. He basically immediately jumps into the deep end of the theological pool. And we've seen this before in Genesis 1, verse 1, or John chapter 1, verse 1. Moses, then the apostle John in John, both also start right into their main grand theme. But what's interesting here is both in Genesis and John, it's nowhere near as in-depth and extended as it is here. Beloved, what we see here is that Hebrews is not for the theologically faint of heart. This ancient Christian sermon is densely packed with deep, rich theological truths. The author, pastor, preacher plunges right into his grand theme. And even because we don't know, because in God's divine inspiration, he determined that we would not know who the author is. We would not know for sure the location that rivets our attention on the content, God's final word. And God, the author here to his original beloved audience of Hellenistic Jewish believers, doesn't want to detract from the tremendous central theme, namely the Son, the Son of God. He thrusts the Son forth, beloved, in unparalleled beauty of literary form. I've never studied a passage, as I studied this week, that is so rich with rhythm, poeticism, and multiple threads and directions you could even go with the outline. The author, pastor, preacher sets forth the person and work of Christ, who he is, and what he has, has done and is doing. And these, in these three verses, are interwoven masterfully, rhythmically, grammatically, thematically, and poetically like nothing I've ever seen before in my study of the Word. And beloved, in this most amazing power pack sentence, it's the opening statement of this entire epistle. Now, when it comes to the outline, as I was wrestling through this and studying this even here this weekend, I, the best way that I could understand this and the best way I want to give it to you is to try to put ourselves in the, put on the thinking cap of that original Jewish audience. Uh, you've heard me say before I mentioned last week that Alexander the Great, when Alexander the Great uh, did what he did that basically the world power and much of the thinking of the world shifted from an oriental way of thinking to an occidental way of thinking from eastern to western from a circular line of logic to a more linear line of lo logic and beloved so when we think of Hebrew believers they think in a more circularly logical fashion than we do that's why for example if you read the gospel of Matthew you will see that the Gospel of Matthew is less chronological than some of the other books. So, all that to say, what we're going to do here this morning is have a threefold outline to capture these interwoven threads of deep, sublime truth all the way through, namely the relation of the Son to God, the relation of the Son to the world, and the relation of the Son to you. And we start in the middle, at the end of chapter 2, or excuse me, the end of verse 2, and the beginning of chapter 3 is the focus of the relation of the Son to God. And then 
then as we start from the middle and go out in radiating concentric circles, we'll go to the middle of verse 2 and the middle of verse 3 to see his relation to the world. And at the beginning of verse 1, through the beginning of verse 2, and at the end of chapter 3, we'll there encounter the relation of the Son to you and to me. And the center part, I think, is there in the middle of verse 2. God has spoken to us in his Son. Now, if you have a New American Standard, you might see the word his there in italics, and that is an indication that that wasn't part of the original text in the Greek and that it was added by the translators. So the sun appears without any kind of article. So one could supply and think of it as the sun or his sun or even a sun. But when we look at the literary beauty and structure and the way in which this author, pastor, preacher is Focusing our attention here, even though it's awkward in the English, I think the best way to understand precisely what he wrote here is precisely as he wrote it. Namely, God has spoken to us in Son. In Son. That is where our attention is to be, in God's final word and God's final work. What the author is telling his audience, what God is telling you and me is that God has said everything he wants to say in the Son. God has done everything he wants to do and is doing everything he wants to do in Christ. There are no additives, no supplements, no preservatives added. Uh, For example, you may go to the store and get peanut butter. Peanut butter is a calorie-dense food, and it's a very healthy food eaten in appropriate measures with right Uh, other balances and such and when you do that when you go to the store you should get peanut butter with two ingredients peanuts and salt get peanut butter that you have to refrigerate and beloved that's a whimsical illustration but that is in some ways what God is doing right here he wants us to focus all our attention on the son of God on his son on son and beloved the Intent, as we would go through this, is to capture the power and the beauty of this opening statement of the entire sermonic epistle to the Hebrews. And, beloved, by studying this, may we breathe heaven's air when God takes these truths and their power and their beauty and digs it and plunges it deeper even into our hearts, into our minds, into our thinking. First, Let's look in the center of this great statement, the Son in relation to God. Uh, We know that John said in John chapter 1, verse 18, Christ said, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Or you can think of Philip, the uh, bean-counting accountant disciple that came to Jesus in John chapter 14, 14, verse 8. And he said, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus responded to Philip in verse 9 of John 14, said, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is not saying, I am am the Father in an absolute total identity. But what he's saying is there is a oneness and there is a distinctness. He's saying that not that he is the Father, but all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. All the radiance of the glory of God, all the effulgence of the Godhead is within him. And beloved, what we see here in the center of these three verses is that the Son is the creator of God's world and the radiator of God's glory. And 
two of the themes of salvation and the themes of the divine attributes and work of God the Son is creation and redemption. And when we have a greater understanding, when we discover more of the technologies that enable us to see the majesty and the magnitude of God's creation, that drives home the greater need we have for an adequate understanding of this origin. And God tells us everything we need to know about the creation of all things and their purpose. So, in the text, at the end of verse 2, through whom, so through the Son, whom also he made the world. Made, poeo. We, we get the English word poem from this Greek word poeo, translated as made here. And the point here is that the world is a work of art of God. It's a masterpiece. God made the world. He composed the world. He painted the world. He sculpted the world. But What's interesting here is the Greek words translated as the world are tous aeonos, literally the eons or the ages. And it's interesting, it's not the word cosmos, which is often used for the universe. And this word, the ages, the eons that he's talking about here is more comprehensive certainly than the world or even the cosmos. This includes all of the creation of the vast galaxies and the stars and the innermost leptons, quarks, atoms, molecules, and so forth. And it also includes the events that have taken place since creation, all the history through the ages. What he is saying here is the Son is the creator of God's created order, of the entire space-time continuum. That is the magnitude, that is the majesty of what he is saying. He's saying anything and everything for all time is created by him. In John 1, verses 1 through 3, I referenced it before, but it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then we go to verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being. Uh, Colossians 1, verse 16. Paul there was writing to the church in Colossae, and he said, By him, by the Son, by Jesus Christ, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. Beloved, the point of Paul, the point of Christ, the point of John, the apostle in John chapter 1, and the point of the author, pastor, preacher of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ, the Son, is the creator of God's World. And we understand from this that from the lowest to the highest, all were created in him, through him, and for him. Again, anything and everything. So, right there in the center, he is the creator of God's world. Secondly, he is the radiator of God's glory. We see at the beginning of verse 3. And we can pause for a moment and ask the question, as we read the Bible, as we look at even the opening of God's written revelation, what is the first record of what God has to say? And it is Genesis 1 verse 3, he said, let there be light, let there be light. Here in Hebrews 1 verse 3, you read the words, and 
He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. This element of light, of effulgence, of a shining forth. Uh, You might have a translation that says reflecting the glory of God. That's not a very good translation. What is being described here is the radiation of God's glory, of God himself. The Shekinah glory of God as we would understand from the Old Testament. Uh, The glory of God, one way in which we can understand it, it is the collective expression of all of God's divine attributes. And even yesterday, I was so blessed by the men's big breakfast. I was blessed by Kyle's testimony and uh, by Gary's great exhortation that all of our life offered up to the Lord is a form of worship. And then the, I was so blessed by the last two songs that we sang. I shared with the men yesterday, coming on the heels of the Shepherds Conference, that it is a massively powerful experience to be in a room with 3,500 men and pastors just belting out hymns. But having said that, I'll take 60, 70 Santan Bible Church men singing any day of the week over that one. And the last song that we sang as Kyle led us had the beautiful words, what other glory consumes like fire? Beloved, that is what the author of Hebrews is pointing us towards when we think of the sun. Athanasius said, the brightness can't be separated from the light. But it is by nature proper to it and coexistent with it. And the idea there is in something of the same way as the rays of light that emanate and radiate from the sun can't be separated from the sun, so also Christ is the radiance of the divine glory. And beloved, these are again deep waters that the author takes us and throws us in right from the beginning. This is the inner workings, and not just the inner workings, but even the inner being of the triune Godhead. There is both oneness and distinctness between the Father and the Son in his eternal deity and his eternal glory. That's why, for example, Jesus in his high priestly prayer Uh, when he was in the upper room and on the eve of his crucifixion said in his prayer to the Father, and now you glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. Beloved, that is what is coming through with this author's exhortation to us. But he continues, he is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of his nature. Uh, those two words, the exact representation, that's uh, a translation from one Greek word. The original Greek word would be used to describe an engraver's tool or the actual engraving or a seal or a stamp that maybe a king would have displaying his full authority and authenticity. And it's interesting, that word is even more emphatic than, for example, you see the English word image, how the sun is the image of God in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Colossians 1, verse 15. This exact representation, again, is even more emphatic. And what the author is saying here is, just as the glory is really in the radiance, so also the very being, the very nature, the very substance of God is in Christ, in exact representation and embodiment of who God essentially is. And to see Jesus is indeed to see God, even as Jesus responded to Philip. And he is 
the climax of God's revelation. He is God's final word, which, by the way, that's the sermon title here this morning. Uh, One more beautiful, as we're swimming down at the bottom and towards of this deep part of the pool, when he says, of his nature, the Greek word translated as nature is hypostasis. Now, I say that because there's an English word hypostatic, which isn't used in normal regular circles, but in church history, the hypostatic union was something that was articulated in the 5th century in the Council of Chalcedon. Now, hang with me here for a moment. What took place was from the very beginning when the church was being birthed, or when the church was birthed at Pentecost and began to spread, error began to seep in and heresy began to seep in. And most of the heresies and the deep errors were towards the person of Christ. We can think of different cults now that attack and undermine and deny the deity of Christ. And that was certainly the case with Arius in the towards the end of the 4th century and into the 5th century. But at the very beginning, it was actually the humanity of Jesus that was being attacked. And in the Council of Chalcedon, what was stated was called the uh, hypostatic union, which basically said he is one person with two natures, with a divine nature and a human nature, without confusion, change, division, or separation. Point being, he is 100% God, always has been, is now, and always will be. And now, on this side of the incarnation, he is now also 100% man. And both are absolutely essential. And when you read the Nicene Creed, or even you read the Chalcedonian Creed, they almost read like an expansion or a summary of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And beloved, the point here is this. Friend, the point here is this. For salvation, for rescue, for cleansing, for hope, we need a Savior. And we need a Savior who is a man and a Savior who is God. Because a man sinned, a man must pay the penalty for sin. Because God is the one who judges, God must be the one who saves. And One item I think the author of Hebrews would have us understand is that a Savior who's not man and a Savior who's not God is a Savior who can't save. That is the center of this great sentence, the Son's relation to God. Now we'll expand out in the first concentric circle in the middle of verse 2, in the middle of verse 3, the Son's relation to God the world. And what we see here is that the Son is the receiver of God's inheritance and the sustainer of God's creation. Uh, First, he is the receiver of God's inheritance. And beloved, we see in the middle of verse 2, whom he, whom God appointed heir of all things. His heirship follows his sonship. His heirship flows from his creatorship. And what the author is saying here is the son inherits what he created. He created it in the beginning, and he will inherit it all in the end. And this is flowing out even from the magnificent promise from God the Father to God the Son in the beautiful messianic psalm, Psalm 2, verse 8, where God the Father says to God the Son, Ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. But here, 
In Hebrews 1, in the middle of verse 2, he says, appointed heir of all things. This is totality. Uh, This is his creation and his possession. And the point is from the highest beloved to the lowest, all were created in him, through him, and the point here, for him. For him to receive as is due, just, God-ordained, God-given inheritance. And by way of application, one of the commentators that I was reading, he basically did a role-playing kind of commentary of a skeptic or of someone that would object to this. It could be a scientist searching for the grand unification theory that tries to deny that which he cannot deny, the existence and the work of God. And the commentator said, now one might object this way, quote, well, I believe that man has his place and his power and his planning and thinking. And the response is, well, O puppet, what have you created? You brought nothing into the world and carry nothing out. O dust, living a little while to dust returning, can you get on without breathing a day, an hour? No, you must depend on every breath, for every breath, every heartbeat on the God whose hand holds the very breath that you're drawing right now was his point. Beloved, Understand this, we are breathing his air. We are drinking his water. We are eating his food. Unless you're eating peanut butter that needs to be refrigerated. No, excuse me, peanut butter that doesn't need to be refrigerated. You know, with that litany of extra ingredients. But I digressed. Beloved, he is the heir of God's inheritance. And we'll get there later, but the author applies that to you and to me. We know Paul told the church in Galatia that we are joint heirs with Christ. The author of Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 17 says, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. (laughs) Beloved, he is the heir and we are joint heirs. Everything and anything belongs to him, both physically and temporally speaking. That means that he is the one who owns death and life. He is the one that owns all things that cause pain, all things that cause mourning, which means you can trust him. It means you can go to him. It means you can cry out to him. You can hope in him, even as we sang before. Beloved, he is indeed the receiver of God's inheritance. And as we go to the middle of verse 3, he is the sustainer of God's creation. And it is because the Son has the power to create, he also has the power to sustain, to preserve, to govern. And what we do here is this beautiful rhythm, poetic movement from his being to his bearing along the world to its intended end. We can say it this way, as creator, anything and everything is from his hand. As receiver, anything and everything is going into his hand. And as sustainer, anything and everything is right now, every second in his hand. That's why in the middle of verse 3, look at it. He says, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And the translation there, uphold, I mean, it's, it's okay, but the, the picture here, it's not like, like uh, Atlas or like, you know, the eponymous title, Atlas Shrugged, or the picture of Atlas where Atlas has the world on his shoulders. The point here is that the creation is not a dead weight on the shoulders of the sun. This is the sun who is carrying all things forward on their appointed course, to their appointed goal. 
Uh, the root word that is translated here as uphold in the Greek translation of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Do you remember there Moses wrote at the very beginning, the earth was formless and void, tohu wabohu, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving, was hovering over the surface of the waters. The same word translated as upholding all of creation is the same word that talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit at the very beginning of creation when he was moving and hovering over the waters. Beloved, what that means here is the Son is dynamically active in his created order. He sustains and directs everything toward the fulfillment of their purpose. And if you want to geek out a little bit, the, it's, it's a present participle in the Greek. So literally, he is continuously upholding all things, both preserving and moving, both governing and guiding. Uh, when you think of the word providence, the providence of God, theologians have often broken it into three kind of categories, concurrence, preservation, and governance. The idea of the concurrence aspect of God's providence is that God uses the actions and motives of men and women to accomplish his sovereign purpose. The fervent prayers of a righteous man, a righteous woman, accomplish much. Under the umbrella of the concurrence aspect of God's providence, the latter two, the preservation and the governance, those two are exactly what the author is bringing to our heart's attention when he says he is upholding all things. And John Owen, the Puritan, said it this way, Lord Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, has the weight of the whole creation upon his hand. Job In Job 12, verse 10, speaking of God, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Everything and anything is only in existence because of him. And that even points to one of the attributes of God. And again, we're swimming here in the deep theological end of the pool, in the deep end of the theological pool. One of the beautiful attributes that is not often talked about as much of God is his aseity. It comes from Latin, from oneself. And basically what that means is that God exists and is completely independent of any outside influence. And that's the beautiful truth of anything and everything except for God is dependent upon God. So even here, he's bringing out the aseity of the Son. And this means practically that from the physics that are applied when you push on your brake that cause your car to slow down, or the, the nuclear forces that make it so your atoms don't shatter apart and you don't just explode, all are dependent upon Christ because he is the imminent sustainer of all things. There's no beloved remote corner, no uh, remote corner of the universe friend that is untouched by the power of Christ. There's not a renegade molecule in the entire universe. And the very breath that you draw now, you and I draw totally based upon his kind provision, upon the kind provision of the Son. So the author takes us to the Son in relation to God, uh, to the Son in relation to the world. Now, verse 1, the beginning of verse 2, and at the end of verse 3, his relation to you and to me. 
We move from the transcendence of God to the imminence of God, from the cosmic universal work of the Son to the intimate personal work of the Son. And what we'll see is that he is the revelator of God's word, the purifier of God's people, and the ruler of God's realm. First, he's the revelator of God's word. And this is how it begins here in our Bible, verse 1 and 2. And what the author is saying here is that while we understand he's superior in possession by virtue of being the inheritor, he is also superior in proclamation. And his proclamation is not only superior, but it's final. And God is here, and he's not silent. And the literal verse 1 reads this way. In many portions and many ways, long ago, God spoke to the fathers and the prophets. What he's doing here is the author takes the readers back to the beginning of creation, back to the plan of redemption, and he doesn't just stay there. He spans from creation to the new creation of the adopted son and daughter of God, of the one new man, the reconciled family of God, of the temple of God that he is building. And beloved, had God remained silent, we would have been left in darkness and ignorance. But God is here and God does speak in many portions and many ways, which in the King James Version reads at sundry times and in diverse manners. So if you ever occasionally hear that expression, that's where it comes from. Beloved, what it means is in the Old Testament, in the Bible they had at that time at their hand, many people, many times, many ways. God spoke to Adam, to Abel, to Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. God spoke in dreams. He spoke in visions. He spoke in events. He spoke audibly to the whole assembly of Israel in Deuteronomy 5, verse 22. God spoke through angels. He spoke through a donkey. He spoke through a burning bush. He spoke through writing on the wall. Many portions in many ways to the fathers, watch this, in the prophets. It's interesting, the author of Hebrews doesn't merely say that God spoke by the prophets. He spoke in the prophets. And in the same way, he speaks in son, in son. And what he is doing here is while the author is encouraging these Hellenistic Jewish believers to not obey the siren call and go back to their old covenant, their old sacrificial system, their old wineskins, even while he is doing that, the author is setting his stamp of authenticity and approval on the Old Testament, on the Bible that they had in their hands. And beloved, the Old Testament is a story that needs a conclusion. It needs a messianic conclusion. Their word, their word was the word of God, but it was not the final word. And it was first to the fathers. It is finally in son, in his son. This is the old and the new. This is the progressive revelation. But it's not, it is not a progression from less true to more true. It's not a progression from less worthy to more worthy. It is a progression from promise to fulfillment. It's a progression from fragmentary and incomplete to whole and complete and final. 
And even when you read the words at the beginning of verse 2, in these last days. These last days are the final times. He moves from the former times of verse 1 to the final times which we are now. Uh, there are some Christians that are maybe somewhat in the newspaper exegete camp. And you might, might have heard this, this statement before. You know what? I see everything that's going on. I think we're in the last days. And the response says, brother, sister, yes, I, we are in the last days. And we've been there for 2,000 years. In other words, since the ascension, since the Son sat at the right hand of the Father, we've been in the last days. That's what he is talking about here. The curtain has fallen on the previous age, and the final age has now dawned. And what he says in the middle of verse 2, has spoken to us in Son. Beloved, the self-disclosure of God in Son is the climax and fulfillment of all the previous revelations. And in somewhat of the same way that there is a unity and a disunity, there is continuity and discontinuity, even between the Father and the Son, so also between the many prophets and the one prophet. There is both continuity and great contrast. And notice this as well. Jesus spoke. Whenever Jesus spoke, that was the message of God. That was the word of God. You have the red ink parts of the gospel, and then you have the black ink, the black ink divine commentary on the red ink. But notice what the author here doesn't say. He doesn't talk about the message of his son. He says the message is his son, is the son. And to help us kind of grasp that awkward in son, uh, you might be uh, texting or emailing or snapchatting or you know ad nauseum whatever other forms of media you can do now and maybe you're having an interaction with someone you say you know what it, it would be better if we spoke in person what the author here is saying God spoke finally perfectly completely in son that is what he is saying and he is the decisive sure and final word and beloved dear friend the constant message of Scripture in the old and the new is here and your soul will live. Look and live is the message. That is the constant message because the Son is the revelator of God's word. Secondly, he is also the purifier of God's people. We see this in the middle towards the end of verse 3. And what we have here is one more example of this beautiful artistry. We move from creation to redemption. We move in a poetic rhythmical structure from his being to his bearing, now to his beautifying of the child of God. We move from revelation to purification because, beloved, when God speaks, when the God who is not silent speaks, he points to the Christ to purify. And even as we consider him as the message, if we had just needed the information, if we had just needed a message, the angels that the author will address in verse 4 and forward would have been sufficient. But we don't just need a message. We need a sacrifice. We need a priest. We need a savior. And one of the beautiful other dimensions of what's at work here is as we looked at what the sun was doing, that the sun ceaselessly radiates the glory of God. The sun continuously upholds 
all things. And what we have now are once for all acts that are done by the Son. Something he did once for all. Verse 3, when he had made purification of sins. When he had poeo, purification of sin. Point here is the same Son that artistically made the world, made the angels, is the same Son who artistically, perfectly made crafted, sculpted, painted purification of sins. One commentator said of that one statement, this is the most brief and comprehensive statement in all of Scripture of our Lord's work at his first coming. Beloved, the point is the Son reconciles, the Son redeems, the Author, pastor, preacher here sets the trajectory for the rest of this sermonic epistle. He encapsulates the priestly work of Christ. And notice even his language. It's not purification from sins. It's purification of sin. If you're here when we went through Ephesians, you might remember that I made in chapter 1 the comment that the forgiveness of sin as part of the new covenant promise is beautiful. But the redemption, our redemption and our adoption is even more glorious than our forgiveness. And in some ways, we take it even a step further here with our purification. And when we think about it, I mean, the the purification of sin is necessary for forgiveness. But even when we think of redemption or adoption, you could adopt a child and the child may have all kinds of issues and there may be horrific things that may even come from that. But what he's saying here is you, we are purified completely. We are cleansed from and forgiven and pardoned from the penalty of sin. We are being cleansed and purified from the power of sin. And then one day in the future, when we enter into God's eternal glory in heaven, we'll be emancipated, cleansed, and purified from even the presence of sin. That is why this goes farther. We will be completely emancipated from error and from evil. And right now, as new creatures in Christ Jesus, that is what is at work in us. Uh, Paul, when Paul was writing to Titus, in Titus 2, verse 14, He's talking about our great God and Savior, this Son, the man, the God, man, Jesus Christ. And Paul said to Titus, chapter 2, verse 14, He who gave himself for us so that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and watch this, purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Bring it out that he is the inheritor of God's or he is the receiver of God's inheritance and the application zealous for good deeds to glorify him. Friend, you may be here this morning not trusting Jesus Christ for your salvation. You may ask the question, who can take care of my sins? Friend, Jesus Christ is the best answer and Jesus Christ is the only answer. He is the only one who can forgive you for your sins. He is the only one who can cleanse you and purify you from your sins. This is what the author of Hebrews is telling all of us. And he even applies this later on. Chapter 9, verse 14, the author there asks in kind of another encapsulation of the priestly work of Christ. Hebrews 9, 14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, 
cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Beloved, this is the word of God. He is, the son is, the revelator of God's word, the purifier of God's people. Lastly, he is the ruler of God's realm. We move from the expiation, the washing of our sin to the exaltation of the son. And what we see here is that the son who speaks in verse 1, beginning of verse 2, and the son who redeems that we just saw in verse 3 is also the son who reigns. And this is another once-for-all act. First was of atonement. This is a once-for-all act of exaltation at the end of verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of the Father in the position of favor and authority. At the right, I'm sorry, at the right hand of the majesty on high, describing the beautiful word and person of God. And this brings out a fulfillment of a psalm of one verse that actually will come up again and again as we go through Hebrews. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Beloved, friend, death is a bitter and relentless enemy. We may succeed in postponing death, but you cannot escape it. All of us will soon have to give an account to one and only judge. And this son who will be your judge, according to Romans 2 verse 5, can be your savior, can be your friend. And even this once for all act of him sitting down, he sat at the right hand of the Father. Understand this, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant system, all the priests, the many, many priests who had, they kept dying, and the many priests that had to first offer sacrifice for their own sin so that they could then offer a sacrifice for the people, none of those priests ever sat down in the holy place or the holy of holies. There was no chair Why, one might ask, because their work was never complete. The work of the old covenant, of the Old Testament priests, was never complete. So when God, through this author, tells us he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that drives home the point that to tell us it is done, it is finished. Your salvation is secured. And, beloved, the Son is not sitting to rest. He's sitting to rule. He's a sitting ruler and one other imagery, one other truth that comes from this, he is your faithful intercessor. He that was dead is alive forevermore. All was accomplished in the sight of God. All the sins of his people, all your sins were atoned for. Sins past, present, and future have been forgiven. We've all been washed. We've all been justified. We all are being sanctified, and one day we will all be glorified. And in terms of the intercession, this is the heartbeat of what the Apostle Paul was thinking when he wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Beloved, one died for all, once for all. That is the grand unification theme that the author brings out here. And the presentation of Jesus Christ is the responsibility of the church 
of Jesus Christ. And beloved, what the world needs to hear and the world needs to know is the person the world needs to meet, the Son, Jesus Christ. May we introduce this Son to the world. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the timelessness of your message. We thank you, Lord God, for the joy and the beauty and the power and the artistry of the author here and just the great doctrines and the great teaching, the great hope and so much. It's so difficult to grasp, but Lord, we praise you and thank you that the message is simple. Sinful man can be forgiven and have an audience and a permanent eternal home in your presence as your child. We praise you and thank you, Lord God, and thank you, Lord God, uh, even for the women that will be giving their testimony of these truths in the baptismal. Be with us, Lord, as we sing, as we depart from here, as we hear these choice ladies. It is for your glory and for your honor that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.